So we're in the season of the Christian calendar called Epiphany. Epiphany is a seven-week season. It's between Christmas and Lent. And the big idea of epiphany is knowing, is having your eyes opened. We still use this word. It's become part of our cultural vernacular, right? Oh, I had an epiphany the other day. I realized something. I saw something with greater clarity. Epiphany is a season of aha moments. This is what it's designed to be. And the season of epiphany is celebrated all over the world by Christians. And in many places in the world, it's a bigger deal than Christmas. Uh, Rich Henning, Rich Lester, Steve Henning, and I were in Ethiopia this week, seven years ago, and on a day when we planned to drive a significant distance, we almost moved not at all because the Ethiopian Orthodox Church was celebrating Epiphany, and the streets were packed with people celebrating, parading, uh, singing and dancing. The priests were on the street. There was, there was literally no room to drive. We just had to pull over. The common story that is told in the, uh, the celebration of Epiphany is the baptism of Jesus, because it is at the baptism of Jesus when the sky opens up, a voice from heaven declares, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. And people realize, they recognize, maybe for the first time, who Jesus is in this moment. And so Epiphany celebrations all over the world often center around this this symbol of baptism. And so you'll see pictures like this. Maybe you've seen them in places like Russia, Ukraine. People like celebrating Epiphany by taking these ice baths. Give me another one here, Nick. There's like this kind of thing. I guess if there's not a lake, you just wake up and uh, it's Epiphany. And then this is my favorite one here. It's like, woohoo. That's some cold water right there. This is a season, the theme of the season is seeing, it's recognizing, it's discovering, it's knowing, it's I'm alert now, I get it, (laughs) I'm not cloudy anymore, I'm recognizing the truth, right? So for this season of Epiphany, here at Emmaus, we're focusing on this series called The Practices of Jesus. Well, how are those two ideas connected? The basic idea is that by focusing on what Jesus did, on his common practices, on the things which if you were with him, you would have observed him doing. You would have seen him doing these things. That by focusing on those things, the practices of Jesus, we might discover him in a new way. We might recognize him in a new way. We might understand at a deeper level, we may know what it actually looks like to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. You know, there's, there's, you've probably heard this, but there's a difference between the things you understand and the things that you know right? Um, you've, you, the things that you understand are things that you've learned about. Maybe you've read some books about them. Maybe you've listened to a podcast. So you understand at a certain level how these things work. My wife spent an all day, all day last week, she spent um, on Tuesday at this training for turning babies. So I, I look at our family calendar and I see this all day event called spinning babies. And I pictured all these little infants in the teacup ride at Disneyland. I was like, what in the world is this thing? It was a training on how to turn, how to spin or turn a baby that was breech, which means feet down. You want to turn it around because it works better that way if it's head down. She spends a whole day on this training. And I was thinking, this is my point. I could have gone to that seminar and I could tell you all kinds of stuff about how to spin a baby, right? I, I could understand in one level uh, how, how to turn a breech baby. Um, but the, the knowledge that I had would just be from hearing somebody else talk, right? I would know how to do this, but I wouldn't really know 
how to do this in the sense that I would have no experience backing it up. I would have never had kind of a hands-on. So there's this understanding that I think is relatively easy to get in our culture because information is so common. And then there's knowledge, real knowledge that comes from doing it, experiencing it, kind of this hands-on knowledge that comes from real life. You follow me? All right, so we're focusing for a few weeks on what Jesus did on his practices with the hope that we can then follow him, we can do what he did, and in that way, gain some experiential knowledge that moves us beyond just our basic understanding. We want to know what it's like to follow Jesus. We want to know Christianity. We want to know this thing called obedience to Christ. And yeah, I just mentioned Ethiopian Orthodoxy, Disneyland, and Breach Babies in one introduction. Did you catch that? I'm pretty impressed by that. <laughs> All right, what practices have we covered so far? Uh, in the previous weeks, first, first practice of Jesus. Jesus withdrew to draw near. This was a teaching on Jesus' personal devotional practice, his personal spiritual practice. He would get away in order to be with the Father. Second, Jesus worshiped alongside. Rabbi Joshua Rubenstein came and talked about Jesus's practice of gathering with others for worship. This was Jesus's communal spiritual practice. So he had a personal spiritual practice and then he had a communal spiritual practice, which all of you are, are participating in right now. Third, we looked at how Jesus stood for and against. This was last week. I looked at one element of Jesus' cultural engagement practice. He stood for things. He stood against other things. Jesus was not wishy-washy. He saw the real issue. He called it out. And today I want to look at another way that Jesus engages culture. This would be a second practice of engaging culture. Today's practice is Jesus lifted up. And I want to show you how Jesus, through his actions, elevated the social status of those who were seen as less than. So we'll look at what Jesus did in his culture, and then we'll end with three ways that you and I can lift others up, can elevate the status of others in our culture today, all right? So we'll start with Jesus' first century Middle Eastern culture. Can you remember that? Can you get to it? When we read the Bible, we see Jesus elevating the status of those who are seen as less than. This is a practice that we see Jesus doing all throughout his life. We see him doing this. We see it, but we may not realize what's actually happening because we might not recognize how significant and how different and how truly revolutionary some of Jesus' practices or actions are. Why? Because we don't understand the norms of his culture very well. Jesus, In Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture, which you could probably describe describe as you know, Jewish, first century, Palestinian, under Roman oppression culture. In that culture, for the, from the Jewish perspective, Gentiles or non-Jews, people of different races from the Jews were seen as less than. Children, though I'm sure they were cherished, were seen as less than. And women were viewed as less than. Nobody's, probably nobody's really surprised to hear that, right? Um, it's probably not too difficult to imagine an ancient culture where men of a specific race regard themselves as superior to men of another race or even women and children. When it comes to issues of personhood, like 
political or social rights or privileges, when it comes to things like owning property, when it comes to things like having a voice in government or having a valued place at the table or a valued place at the marketplace or a role in the worshiping community, it seems that humans have always existed in some sort of class system or even a caste system and have assigned varying levels of value or varying levels of dignity even to others. This is, it just happens. It seems like it's always been that way. And so one of the things that Jesus does is he lifts up those who are seen as less than in his culture. And we might read right over some of the most revolutionary actions because today they, they just don't seem that revolutionary. It's been 2,000 years after all. But in his culture, they were groundbreaking changes. So here's one, and it's just one, but here's one sort of provocative peak into the culture of Jesus' day. There's a Jewish prayer book. It's called the Siddur. It was first put together in the 4th century. Um, it's what they still use today. But even though it was put together in the 4th century, it includes prayers that had been prayed for hundreds of years before the 4th century, in some cases a 1,000 years before the 4th century. For instance, one of the prayers in the Jewish prayer book is called the Shema. It comes right out of a book of the Bible, Deuteronomy 4, chapter, or, uh, 4 verses 5 and 6. The Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? You've heard this. Jesus uses this prayer. Um, prayed daily by Hebrew people, more than a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, still prayed by Orthodox Jews today, the Shema. Another prayer included in the Jewish prayer book that is not found in the Bible, it's prayed during the time of Jesus, but its origin is from another place, and it is also still prayed in Orthodox Jewish communities today. It's called the dawn prayer, like the morning, the dawn prayer. This is a prayer that Jewish men were instructed to pray every morning before their feet even touched the floor. And the prayer is often quoted today by scholars in order to reveal the dominant perspective of the Jewish culture in the time of Jesus, because it's so blatant and, and frankly kind of graphic. The dawn prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving for three blessings. And the three blessings are the blessing of not being a goy, which is kind of a pejorative word for a Gentile, the blessing of not being a slave, and the blessing of not being a woman. It begins like this, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a goy, a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. All right, so Jesus is operating in a culture, you got to understand this, where men are literally thanking God that they are not Gentiles, slaves, or women. Modern Jewish prayer books still include this prayer. The language has been significantly adjusted, as you can imagine, in the 13th century when women started entering religious life, again during the suffrage movement. Now this line says, thank you for making me as I am, which really changes the tone, doesn't it? Because it's a different time. So let's remember Jesus' culture. In some modern Jewish literature, they will argue that this was the original meaning of this prayer. Thank you for making me as I am. So I phoned a rabbi this week. I called Rabbi Joshua. I'm like, hey, um, what do you think about this dawn prayer thing? And he's like, yeah, that whole, it, it meant that in the beginning. He's like, it's a very optimistic view of that prayer. 
Uh, he's like, the, the original intent of that prayer was as offensive as it sounds to you, he said. Um, and others that I consulted this week, including a really well-done, full-blown Jewish website called myjewishlearning.com. It's a fascinating website. It clearly supports Joshua's take as well. Um, what, first century, what first century Jews were praying, this is just simply the dominant view of the culture, was I'm blessed, God, because I'm not like them, and I'm not like them, and I'm not like them. Those others, those Gentiles, those slaves, those women who are seen as less than me. And one of the practices of Jesus is that he confronts this view and he works to elevate the cultural perspective of those seen as less than, such as Gentiles. The instance, or for instance, one of the things that Jesus does to confront and then elevate the view of Gentiles is this. He makes them the hero of his stories. One of, the, one of the Jesus stories that is so famous that's become part of our common language even today, 2,000 years later, is the story of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard this story. Today, a Good Samaritan is anyone who helps somebody. It's anyone who, who does the right thing in perhaps a way that's sacrificial in some way. The origin of the phrase Good Samaritan is a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10 about a man who's on a journey and he gets mugged, he gets robbed, he gets taken uh, and left for dead in the ditch on the side of the road, which was actually a common concern on one of the major trade routes into Israel into Jerusalem. So this is a well-understood, real-life threat that Jesus is tapping into. People travel that road, and they often get mugged on that road. It's a dangerous place. So Jesus tells the story about a familiar experience. Guy gets beat up, stripped of his clothes. They take his wallet. They leave him for dead on the side of the road. And then in the story that Jesus tells, a Jewish priest comes along. Oh, that's good because he's a good guy, right? He's going to help people because he's a Jewish priest. Not this one. He crosses the road and he keeps going, leaves the guy in the ditch. Next in Jesus' story, here is a Levite, uh, a member of the tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel from which all the priests come. All the priests come from the tribe of Levi. He's a good guy, right? He's going to help this poor dude on the side. Of the no, this guy crosses the road too and keeps going and doesn't even, acts like he doesn't even notice that he's there. Then a Samaritan comes. Oh, no, now what's going to happen? This is going from bad to worse, but wait a minute. Well, okay, so what's a Samaritan? A Samaritan is a member of a race that was created when northern tribe Jews during the Babylonian exile intermarried with other races. And so now, hundreds of years later, there is this culture, the Samaritans, this race, which is despised by other Jews, seen as not pure-blooded, seen as theologically incorrect, the Samaritans claim to be part of Judaism, but in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans are the bad guys. And so here comes this Samaritan. He comes walking down the road. And in Jesus' story, the only one who is good is a Samaritan. Right? And he's really good. He's above and beyond good. 
He picks up the almost dead guy. He bandages his, his wounds. He puts him on his mode of transportation. He takes him to the hospital. He pays for his medical bills. He pays for his housing expenses. He pays for his food. And he comes back later to check on him, make sure he's doing okay. He is a really good guy, right? Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. In fact, if you read the context of the story in Luke, you'll see that Jesus tells the story as an answer to a Jewish leader who asks Jesus, how can I obey the law of God? In other words, how can I be a really good Jew? And Jesus' answer is essentially, be like that guy. Be like the hero in my story. Oh, and by the way, the hero in my story is a non-Jew. I mean, it's baffling. It's like warp. Yeah. What is Jesus doing? He is doing a few things, but one of them is this. He's lifting people up. He is revealing their basic human dignity. He is challenging this cultural racism that is causing people to push others down. He is confronting this deeply embedded prejudice, and he's challenging that view. He's lifting up the Gentiles. Another famous example of Jesus lifting others up is a very brief story. It's recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's often referred to simply as Jesus blesses the children. Parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. They want him to bless them, to put his hands on them, and Jesus' own disciples rebuke the parents with stuff like, hey, get these kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for this. We got bigger issues going on. And then Jesus becomes indignant with his own disciples, and he says this, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So here in this story, Jesus stops. Jesus gives kids his full attention. He blesses them. And he even says to his chosen disciples, you all need to be more like these kids. Jesus tells stories in which the Gentile is the hero, and Jesus corrects his disciples by making children the standard. He makes Gentiles the hero. He makes children the standard. And then perhaps the most significant cultural leap forward is demonstrated in Jesus' view of women. And in the very countercultural way that he treats women and ascribes to women really high value. Common cultural view of women at the time was really, really low. For instance, women could not own property. Women could not inherit their dad's property. Women's testimony was not considered valid testimony in court. In, uh, in fact, the odds of basic survival for a woman or a woman without the status and the protection of their husband or their father was very low. You are not in good shape if you lose your husband and your dad, if you're a woman in first century Israel. Jesus confronts this view and significantly elevates the status of women. Here's a few examples of Jesus doing that. One, Jesus talks to women. Seems like no big deal to us, but it's a big deal. In John 4, there's an account of Jesus talking with a woman at the well. And uh, you're like, well, everybody's got a drink. It's a public well. What's the big deal? Or it's clearly a big deal because John says in 427 of his gospel, just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman because this just wasn't done. A second example, Jesus sees women. 
He sees them. Luke describes the scene in which Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. It's Sabbath, and there's a woman in the back. She's been crippled for 18 years. She can't bend over. And Luke writes, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are free from your infirmity. Jesus sees the woman. Then he calls her forward and makes her seen. Third, Jesus touches women. The very next sentence in Luke 13 is, then he put his hands on her. And immediately she straightened up and praised God. So the main issue that everybody focuses on is that Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath because he's breaking the cultural understanding of Sabbath law. But what also would have been more than a little bit shocking in that culture is that Jesus sees a woman in need, invites her forward in the synagogue to be seen, and then touches her in a public gathering to heal her. Very unusual behavior. Fourth example of Jesus elevating the status of women is seen in Luke 10. We might read right over it. We almost always do. It's the story of Mary and Martha, their sisters. Martha's getting stuff ready for the meal, right? And where is Mary and what is she doing? Does anyone know? She's Mary, Luke writes, who sat at the feet of the Lord listening to what he said. That's one of those cultures. You just read, okay. No, Jesus is a rabbi, he's teaching, and Mary is in the position of a student, of a disciple. She, with a bunch of dudes, is sitting there at the feet of Jesus, just listening to his teaching. Jesus teaches women. This simply was not done, and there are many more examples. Through his actions, Jesus elevated the status of women. Jesus heals women. Jesus grieves with women. Jesus defends women. There's no defense for a woman caught in adultery. There's a famous story about Jesus defending a woman in adultery. A man could dismiss his wife in divorce for any reason, no questions asked. Not available to women. Jesus engages that uh, complete inequality. In the story of the life of Jesus, women play a significant role. The first to believe that Jesus is the Messiah is a woman. The first to accept the fact that Jesus must die for the sin of the world is a woman. The first to declare the resurrection of Christ, women. And then in early Christianity, like the first couple hundred years after the ministry of Christ, followers of Jesus continue to lift up women. They got it. They didn't just understand, they knew it. This is what we're supposed to do. In fact, one of the sociological reasons for the rapid increase of Christianity in the first couple hundred years is that unlike the Roman culture and members of other cultures, Christians would not expose their female babies to the weather and everything else and in fact would welcome in, would adopt female babies of other people who were unwanted. And so... The, the female population of the Christian community grows in a culture where the, the male population far outnumbers the woman, the female population. The Christian community has a whole lot of women for the simple fact, there's other factors, but one of the sociological factors is that they valued women. 
They were pro-life for male babies and female babies. Okay, here's a question for you. What was at the root of this, do you think? Like, what motivated this perspective? What is the root of Jesus' practice of lifting others up? What's the engine driving that? Do you have any thoughts? How would you explain this? Why? Go ahead. Got to have some idea. It's okay. There could be several reasons. Do you have any thoughts? I'm sorry? All are valued. valued. This is a conviction that Jesus has. All are valued. I'm going to come back to that, Jim. Thanks. Something else? Love. Love. It's a great answer, right? It's a great answer. Jesus actually loves children. He's not faking it. He actually loves Gentiles. Not making that up. He loves women. Sometimes we have a hard time getting there, but what Jim said is the conviction that should be enough of a motivation, which is that all humans have dignity, right? All human beings have value. And this is a conviction rooted in the creation story of the Bible, where the writer says, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You're, not, you're never going to engage in lifting up the status of others unless you believe in the basic human dignity of others. This is why it's so common in warfare for people to deride the enemy as less than human. That makes it very much, uh, much easier for me to shoot at them. We have to insist on the basic human dignity of all people. This comes right out of the creation story, which is the, is the root of our faith. All right, let's do a really brief sidebar on a related issue. It's not what I'm talking about primarily this morning, but it's related, and I probably never have another opportunity, and people constantly are asking me about this. So let me take just six minutes. I timed it this morning. I think I could do this in six minutes on the topic of women in ministry. You can get a master's degree in this, and there's a lot of books on this. Um, just, it's just the top level, all right? Women in leadership positions in the church, which is related to, not exactly the same as what we're talking about, and I, it's important to see the difference, so I'll point that out at the end. One of the things that Bible-believing Christians disagree about is whether women should serve in roles of spiritual authority, whether women should preach, whether women should uh, lead in a church context. You probably know this, right? It's no mystery. Different churches which are Christian, hold to different positions on this issue. And different Christians who love God and read the Bible have different opinions on this issue. Why is that? Well, because you can make an argument from the Bible for either side. You can. The argument against women in positions of spiritual leadership, and again, very quick summary, is primarily rooted in two things. The first is the Old Testament, and the second is a very specific statement Paul makes to Timothy. In the Old Testament, all the Jewish priests are men, and they're all from the tribe of Levi, not from Benjamin, not from Simeon, not from Asher. They're from Levi, and they're not women, they're men. This is what God has apparently established. And so the argument against women priests is rooted in the example, or actually the lack of example, of women priests in the Old Testament. And the argument against women in ministry gets a whole lot of fuel from a statement 
in one of Paul's letters to Timothy where he says he does not permit a woman to teach, does not permit a woman to have authority over a man. She must be silent. And then he roots his argument in the fact that a woman was deceived in the garden. Super strong statement. That's one side. Argument for women in ministry is rooted in three basic realities. The first is the fact that the Holy Spirit fills the whole church at Pentecost, women and men, empowering them all for ministry. Read Acts chapter 2. Secondly, strong language by Paul, same guy, to a church called the Galatian church in which he says, now because Christ is here, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So racial divisions have been done away with. There's now no, not slave nor free. So some sort of different value of human beings, that should be done away with in Christ. And there's neither male nor female. So any kind of a gender difference in terms of value or dignity should be done away with. Why, Paul says? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then the third reason supporting the argument for women in ministry, and I think it's the most significant, is the example in both Jesus' ministries and in Paul's ministry of women in ministry with them, including roles where women are teaching. We know of 17 men who followed Jesus. Lots of people followed Jesus, but we know the names of the 12 disciples, then Matthias gets added, and then there's four others whose names we know, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We know of seven women's names. Paul mentions no less than 13 women who he calls co-laborers in Christ with me. 13 names of 13 women, including Lydia, who had a church in her house, and uh, Priscilla, who taught men, like a guy named Apollo, who was an amazing preacher, but Priscilla educated him. All right, so the challenge, if you look at the New Testament, is you got to reconcile a couple of negative statements by Paul about women in ministry with an overwhelming example that Paul did ministry with women, and that's the puzzle. That's the challenge. So I would sum this up by saying, except for the first 300 years of the church and the most recent 200 years of the church, most of church history, the priests are men. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, they're Catholic. I mean, they're men. But in the first 300 years, before the state gets connected with the church, and certainly in the last 200 years, Whole Christian movements, including the Church of the Nazarene, which our church is a part of, have embraced women on an equal standing with men in all roles in the church. And now this is the most important thing. I'm not sure if this is interesting to you, but this is the most important thing for you to understand. Why? Why does our church and our network of churches, why are we supportive of women being ordained and serving in all capacities? Is it because we're so progressive? No. That's not what it's about, even a little bit. It's this. It's because we believe that ministry is a result of gifting, not gender. We believe that the key factor in ministry is gifting, not gender. So if you're gifted to preach, preach. And if you're gifted to lead, lead. 
And if you're gifted to be hospitable, be hospitable. And if you're gifted to share mercy, then share mercy. No one's going to say you're the wrong gender for that in this network because it's not what we base our understanding of ministry on. Now, this isn't something I want to fight over. We're part of a larger organization which, since the beginning, has ordained women as pastors in all other roles. So our position is clear, and it's not up for debate. And it's something which, frankly, if you had a big issue with, you probably wouldn't still be here, right? But, but I, I hope that even if you and I disagree on some level with this, that a basic understanding of the roots of the positions or the arguments would be helpful. Why do some churches... what? I hope that would be helpful. And then ultimately, I hope that we could have enough mutual respect and grace for one another to coexist as we're called to as Christians. All right, that was just a sidebar. This is a little sidebar. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Um, because it's just so misunderstood, and it's a, if, depending on who you read, it's a big deal still. Finally, how do we lift people up? How do we, how can you tomorrow lift somebody up in the name of Jesus Three ways, really fast. First is this. Think individual, not category. Please think individual, not category. It is way easier to mistreat a category, right? And to devalue a category. Oh, it's the Republicans, right? Oh, it's those immigrants. It's just, no, think individual. They are individuals. You will treat them differently. You will treat them better and frankly, if you're a follower of Christ, you are called to see people as individuals. Categories, we understand categories. They help us navigate. They help us understand and put people in some sort of order. They're almost always broken. So we want to see people as individuals. You can lift somebody up tomorrow if you see them as an individual. Right? Secondly, serve. Demonstrate value. Demonstrate value. Jesus places his hands on children and blesses them. That's the first thing, right? He talks and he hears. I think the most effective kind of advocacy for someone who is being mistreated is just rolling up your sleeves and serving that person. Okay. And then third, invite people. Invite people to reevaluate their perspective. with the credibility that comes from knowing their name because you have not treated them as a category, you've treated them as an, as an individual, the credibility of knowing a name, the credibility of having actually been involved in the issue because you're serving those people already, we can offer a compelling alternative to the dominant view. We can say things like, well, you know what, maybe it's actually more like this. Maybe you should consider this narrative behind your conclusion. Clearly, it doesn't work to fight, right? So we got to do something different. My thought is invite someone to engage in a compelling alternative to their perspective. Think individual, serve, and invite people to embrace a, an alternative perspective. I'll just end with this, friends. The really sick thing about Nazi Germany's genocide of Jews is all of the Christian churches that sided with the state and said nothing. 
the really tragic side of the civil rights movement as articulated so brutally in Dr. Martin Luther King's Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail was all the white pastors who said, you know what, you got a point, but it's just not the right time. Would you please wait? I read stories like that and I shudder. These are two relatively recent examples of when followers of Jesus should have been united in lifting people up. But many instead did very little to challenge the cultural perspective and then worse, just thanked God that they're not like them and they're not like them and they're not like them. May God give us the clarity and the courage to follow Jesus who lifted others up. Amen. invite you to look at tomorrow in your mind. People you'll see, the places you'll go. And if you're a follower of Jesus, what is your role? In the lives of those who are seen as less than. Yes, it is your job. Yes, it is our responsibility. God, help us to see what we should do tomorrow, maybe tonight. May we have a holy unsatisfaction with the status quo. May we be unable to do nothing. May we be moved to do something. Because we believe in the basic dignity of all people. Please help us to change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.